You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 20th of November 2023 on Monaco Radio. It's 20 hundred in Beijing, 14 hundred in Kiev, midday here in London and 9am in Buenos Aires. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme... Some in Argentina are celebrating the election of the libertarian Javier Malay as the new president. We'll look at what drove this victory and how a change of leadership will impact the country. Then a group of Arab and Islamic leaders are in Beijing to discuss the Israel-Hamas conflict. We'll examine China's involvement within the context of its wider foreign policy. And... I'm going to convey all of this information that I have to Jimmy. In fact... I look forward to consulting closely with him on a regular basis. <laughs> the voice of Rosalind Carter, who's died aged 96. The couple, who were married for 77 years, had a close and equal partnership. We'll speak to her friend and colleague, Rebecca Tinsley. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Javier Millet has been elected president of Argentina and has promised a major shake-up of the country's economic policies. An unabashed right-wing libertarian, Millet has vowed to combat skyrocketing inflation and a looming recession. Well, on Sunday night, President-elect Millet spoke to supporters. Today is a historic night for Argentina. Thank you very much to everyone who came. Thank you to everyone who made this possible. Thank you to the team who has been working for two years to transform Argentina and to achieve the miracle of having a liberal and libertarian president. Thank you very much. Well, Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and Monocle's Alex de Roya are with me in the studio to discuss the result. Welcome to you both. Fernando, I wonder if you could just break down those figures for us. Was it a big win? Was it a shock? It was a big win. I thought the election would be a bit closer. So the results were Javier Millet won with 55.69%, Sergio Massa 44.30%. I generally thought it was going to be a 50-50 situation here. It was impressive. I mean, he won 20 21 out of the 24 Argentinian provinces, and even in areas where the Peronismo was very strong, it was much closer uh, than expected. So I think he was, uh, you know, if you, t- if, you t- if you ask me, who is the Millet voter? I think it, it's, it's very different. I think it comes from all social classes and different sexes as well. So, yeah, an impressive victory for Millet. Mm. What do you think drove the result, Alex? I think what drove the result um, is the alliance uh, that Millet did with Macri and Bullrich. So to shift over the votes that Patricia Bullrich had beforehand uh, to his own party. And generally, in a general sense, I think it's the discontent uh, with the last 20 years of Argentina and of them 16 years of Peronism. Uh, and of course, people were very angry. I mean, what has driven that anger? Is it largely the economy? 
It is mainly the economy. The and I would say that Argentina's worst enemy, inflation. Yeah. Which is at 140% of the Yeah, 40% and maybe at the end of the year it will reach 170%. Which is perhaps why they rejected the economy minister, Massa. Uh, Fernando, Milay is uh, colourful, <laughs> to say the least. I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit about the man and his history. He is very colourful. And it's interesting that we hear a lot of comparisons of Bolsonaro and Trump. There are a lot of... There are a couple of differences in policies here and there, but I do think Javier Millet has the more kind of colorful uh, biography, if I may say. I mean, from what I understand, he's a prominent economist. He's been a university professor, also a very popular chat uh, radio host uh, as well. But of course, as as the press, I mean, it's inevitable. We have to look at some of the more uh, crazier aspects. There are not many presidents out there who are also tantric sex coaches, who talks to their dead dogs for advice. I mean, this is more or less proven facts. I mean, and, and, and even I was reading a couple of newspapers from the region. I mean, they say, and then in the third paragraph, this is a man that talks to a, a dog for advice. I mean, not judging uh, whatever the fact, but, but it, it, is an interesting, uh, it is interesting to know about those things. But the press are also saying things like he supports organ donation. He yes. thinks you should be allowed to sell your children. Yes, and, and that's what's going to be interesting to see the first year of a Malay government because he's very much a radical in his ideas, undeniably so. But we have to remember that the Peronismo is still quite strong when you look at the Congress. Uh, and Alex would know that. If you look at the composition of the Senate, of the Congress... Millet has a, a, a min- he will have a minority government there, so he, he will have to talk to politicians, which is something that, you know, I don't think he likes that, but mm. he will have to compromise a little bit, right? I mean, one of yeah. one of another of his, some people say, crazy policies is the fact that he wants to just completely get rid of the central bank. Let's have a look at that some of those policies, uh, Alex. Uh, so yeah, he wants to get rid of the central bank. Uh, he wants to dollarize the economy. Um, and I'm not too sure he's going to be able to make it unless he makes these alliances, as Fernando said. Uh, on the social realm of policies, uh, I'm not too sure also that's going to be his priority. I think he's going to try and hit hard with liberal economical reforms at first, reduce also the state spending through reducing the central bank. Um, but I think the social reforms will take maybe a little bit longer. Uh, so he's going to yeah, hit hard with economical reforms. And, and so, I mean, what will this mean eventually for Argentina? And can his reforms actually succeed? Is there anybody there to keep him in check? Uh, and how much will support will he receive from within the government? So there is maybe two instances that could keep him in check. One is the judicial power. Uh, who has already stated that it might be inconstitutional to dollarize the economy. And the other one is Congress. So you cannot dollarize, you cannot shut the central bank if you don't get it approved by the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate. Mm -hmm. Fernando... Argentina itself, we don't know what's going to happen right now. Uh, But already we are seeing some reaction from the region. Uh, Tell us about Argentina's engagement with the rest of the world and how this this new president might affect that. They will have uh, less allies in the region, I have to say, although the far right, well, and the right in general is becoming stronger. And I, I 
predict that perhaps in the upcoming elections there will be more right-wing governments in the region. At the moment, it's only Ecuador, Paraguay and Uruguay. And Uruguay is a very different type of right-wing as well. It's a bit more moderate. But it's interesting to see that the president of Brazil, Lula, you know, he congratulated uh, Javier Milei. I think it would be a very difficult relation. But I hope both countries will be pragmatic because, you know, they have a very strong kind of economic operation. And Javier Milei, he always said, uh, he said, oh, he wants to end Mercosur. You know, he said that that doesn't matter. He wants a more kind of globalized Argentina that you can do deals freely with different countries. He did say some stuff against China as well, which is a massive trading partner uh, of Argentina. He is pro-US, but with a Joe Biden government, I'm not, not sure how close they will be. But look at next year as well. If Trump wins, I think you have a very, very strong ally uh, in the region. Mm, mm. Uh, and Alex, in terms of things that we do know, we've seen the markets move. Yeah, we've seen the markets move. Uh, no, we haven't, actually, because today is a national holiday in Argentina. So markets will be moving tomorrow. However, the markets have somehow moved with what we call a crypto dollar exchange rate. Uh, which has uh, devalued the peso uh, a little bit, not too much. Uh, so I think what the market is waiting is for Millet to state a little bit more about what economic policies he's going to make and when, and then I think the market will take some positions. Mm. So everybody's very expectative of Millet's words today. Now, you're from Argentina. As we know, Fernando, you're, you're from Brazil. So both of you know a lot of people in the country. Were people shocked at this? And what is it going to mean for their day to day? I think a lot of people were shocked about it. Clearly, I think, as Fernando said, it, we were thinking of 50-50, 51, mm. 49, 52, 48. Uh, so people were shocked, I think, also to have such a... Uh, a person elected with so many, I, don't, I wouldn't say scandals, but with this, you know, eccentric personality he has. Uh, however, a lot of people were also very happy that he was elected in the sense that they were happy to kick out the perinist of power. Uh, and generally, you know, in a country where corruption and insecurity are shown every day in the media, I think a lot of people were relieved. Alex, thank you. That's Alex de Royer and uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, here's Isabella Jewell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. An Israeli airstrike on a Gaza hospital has killed 12 people, according to the territory's Hamas-run health ministry. Israel has also reportedly positioned tanks around the Indonesian hospital in the north of the Palestinian enclave. Registration has opened for candidates in next year's Taiwanese presidential election. Lai Ching-tae of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party is leading opinion polls, while the opposition failed to select a joint nominee over the weekend. Taiwan will go to the polls on the 13th of January. The head of Australia's second-largest telecoms firm has resigned after a nationwide outage that left almost half of the country disconnected for nearly 12 hours. Optus's parent company announced that Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin would stand down days after she was questioned by Australia's Senate about the glitch. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Isabella. Arab and Muslim ministers are in Beijing on the first leg of a tour to push for an end to hostilities and to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. 
The officials holding meetings with China's top diplomat Wang Yi on Monday are from Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Indonesia, Palestinian authorities and the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation, amongst others. Well, James Crabtree is a geopolitical analyst and an author who is down the line now from Singapore. James, welcome to the briefing. What is China's motivation in hosting this summit? China's motivation, I think, is partly noble. It, it seeks stability in the world and the and the region, um, but partly geopolitical. Um, in as much as if China can be seen to be an honest broker in this uh, in this region, it will win it plaudits um, and reflect badly on the United States, which uh, is closely allied with Egypt. So China would like to see itself as a major global diplomatic player. And so if it can find a way to you know, bring these parties together, then that would be advantageous to China's position in the world. So since the start of hostilities in Israel, uh, China's foreign ministry has repeatedly stopped short of condemning Hamas, instead calling for a de-escalation and for Israel and Palestine to pursue a two-state solution. Uh, how is that likely to go down with the visiting delegation? Well, I think pretty well. Um, uh, in, in a sense, it shows that China has historically been supportive of the Palestinian cause, and that's the cause that the visiting delegation is is looking for. China finds itself in a slightly complicated position um, because it's not its natural instinct when international events of this kind happen, Ukraine, um, Israel, is to condemn the United States and to blame the United States. But actually, at the moment, it can't do that because it's just in the middle of a rapprochement with America. So its room for diplomatic maneuver is a little bit more constrained than it would be um, under normal times. But but it is courting the the Arab nations um, and uh, attempting to portray itself as a peacemaker. Mm. I mean, China, along with its fellow BRICS members, challenged the Western-dominated global order. Do you think this conflict will benefit that ambition? I think it's double-edged. As I say, I think in the West, people have this sense that China is always seeking advantage in any situation and to some extent, it might be, but it also seeks stability. And therefore, anything which um, upends the current global order um, makes life economically more complicated for China. That's not always welcome um, in Beijing. But at the same time, anything which allows China to portray itself as a leader of countries in the in the global south, in the emerging world, uh, plays into one of the narratives that China has for itself, which is that the, the Western-dominated world is not helpful and, the, and China is a leader of the, the global south nations that are trying to create a new multipolar world order. Mm. As you say, though, there is this attempted rapprochement with the United States, and I wonder how then all this sits within Beijing's wider foreign policy. Well, yes, as I say, it just it complicates matters. If you look at if you compare this with the beginning of um, the Ukraine war, China's natural instinct in Ukraine was to say, well, this is all the Americans fault, basically to repeat Russian propaganda talking points saying this is all to do with the West and NATO being too aggressive. And this is the problem of the Western led order that China is trying to supplant. It's more difficult for China to say that about the United States at the moment, because China is in the middle of orchestrating this um, kiss and make up process that, that was embodied with the Biden Xi meeting a couple of days ago. So it means that China has been less critical of the United States and actually up until this point has been a rather 
a minimal player in the diplomacy around the Middle East, certainly if you compare it to the United States, which has been intimately involved from the beginning. So in a sense, this is um, China's attempt late in the day to, to gain some relevance, I think, in, in this process. And what about the fact that they have not supported uh, having a ceasefire? Is that, is that a problem? Would, would I, mean, I don't think so because so I don't think so because most of the Western countries also don't support having a ceasefire and therefore China is taking a, a the safest position at the moment is to argue in favour of a humanitarian pause but not a ceasefire and and so if China's position is that there there shouldn't be a ceasefire but there should be humanitarian pauses then that's a very uh, a kind of inoffensive position. China's role in the Middle East in general has been to try and be friends with everybody um, uh, because China's main aim in the Middle East is to um, acquire uh, energy and um, extend its influence um, as broadly as possible. And therefore, um, I think it will portray itself as an honest broker, able to bring people together where the Americans are divisive. Um, but it isn't going to seek to insert itself in um, diplomacy that would make it terribly unpopular with one side or the other. James, thank you very much. Thanks also to what your cat, your baby, your parrot. My apologies. Is that <laughs> that is Eric, who's um, a, a loud Maine Coon cat, who's decided to make himself. I don't know if he has views on the Israel-Palestine conflict, but um, he, this evening he does. So. <laughs> thank you then very much to both James and Eric Crabtree. You're listening to the briefing on Monocle Radio. Now let's turn to today's business headlines with Victoria Scholar, who's Head of Investment at the British stockbroker Interactive Investor. Victoria, good afternoon to you. Afternoon. Uh, Let's talk about Sam Altman, the man who was in charge of OpenAI. He was sacked, uh, causing much shock around the world and indeed in the industry. He's now been rehired by Microsoft. Tell us more. (laughs) Yes, that's right. It's been a bit of a roller coaster few days in the C-suite of OpenAI, which is the artificial intelligence giant behind ChatGPT. Uh, it's been a surprise decision that he was uh, sacked as CEO at the end of last week. And the company is actually backed by Microsoft, which has invested billions into ChatGPT. And now the tech giant CEO, Satya Nadella, has tweeted that uh, Sam Altman is going to be moving to Microsoft to head up its new advanced AI research team. And we've seen that shares in Microsoft are poised to open higher at lunchtime today, thanks to its uh, new recruits. Uh, meanwhile, we've learned that the former CEO of Twitch, which is the live streaming interactive gaming company, uh, Emmett Shear, he's going to be taking over as the new boss of OpenAI. AI, something he describes as a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity. Uh, But in terms of trying to understand what's been happening, it's understood that the board removed Altman because they lost confidence in him. There are scientists on the board of OpenAI who are understood to have been concerned about the company's pace of expansion, spearheaded by Altman, as well as some of the dangers associated with AI, which, of course, has been a huge discussion point this year. Um, But Microsoft Nadella said that uh, he remains committed to the partnership with OpenAI and says he has confidence in the product uh, roadmap. So a lot going on at the two companies. So fascinating to be watched very closely. Now, oil prices are trading higher after a sharp boost on Friday. Tell us why. 
Yes, that's right. We've seen the oil prices are up by over 1% this morning, extending gains after Friday's 4% surge, which helped to reverse some of the prior losses that we saw earlier last week, which pushed oil to four-month lows. Uh, the cartel of oil exporting countries, OPEC+, Plus, has reportedly been signalling that it might consider further supply cuts at its next meeting, which is on the 26th of November. This is to try to support the market after a recent slide that sent prices falling almost 20% since September. And that's been driven by the weak global economy, which has prompted expectations of softer oil demand ahead. And also the Israel-Hamas conflict hasn't led to a spike in oil prices that many had predicted might play out. Uh, so lower oil prices, of course, typically welcomed by consumers and businesses because it makes costs come down and help to reduce inflation. But for oil exporting countries, they, of course, prefer higher oil prices to try and uh, boost their revenues. Mm. I mean, it is very interesting because many people expected uh, that that conflict in the Middle East to have a, a big impact on oil prices. Why hasn't it? Well, I think it's because of the uh, involvement of Iran. You know, the more involved Iran is, that would um, have more of an impact in oil prices because um, that, of course, is a huge player in the uh, oil exporting market. Uh, so the fact that it's been uh, relatively contained means uh, that we haven't seen that knock-on impact on oil prices. But, of course, that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen uh, next year if we were to see the conflict continue. Right. Now, there's an equi equipment rental business called Ashstead, and their shares are plunging today. Why is that? Yes, that's right. The company has downgraded its full year outlook. It expects annual profit to come in about 2 or 3% below market expectations. Uh, the weakness has been driven by lower emergency response activity with fewer natural disasters in the US, as well as the strikes in Hollywood, which have negatively impacted the film and TV business in Canada. The US accounts for the majority of its revenues. But this is a company that's listed in the UK on the, on the FTSE 100, and it's slid to the bottom of the index, uh, shedding as much as 15% at one stage this morning, wiping out its year-to-date gains. And, and so this is a company, what, that, that, that sends equipment off to, obviously, disaster zones, but movies as well? Yes, that's right. It's um, rental equipment. So it can be used in lots of different activities. But um, because of those uh, or, or lower uh, emergency response uh, activities, so there's been less natural disasters, for example, uh, in the United States, uh, that has actually uh, dampened demand for uh, its business. Victoria, thank you very much indeed. That's Victoria Scholar there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. <laughs> Rosalind Carter has died peacefully at home, aged 96. Mrs Carter was married for 77 years to Jimmy Carter, the 39th President of the United States and the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize recipient, who's now 99 years old. The Carters redefined and revolutionised the post-presidency and, through their joint efforts, they worked on world peace and human rights on behalf of the Carter Centre, a non-governmental Atlanta-based organisation founded to wage peace, fight disease and build hope. Rebecca Tinsley is a journalist, a human rights activist and the founder of the charities Network for Africa, a group that helps survivors of genocide rebuild their lives and of Waging Peace, which supports Sudanese asylum seekers and refugees in the UK. 
In the early noughties, Rebecca and her husband Henry were asked by President and Mrs Carter to begin the Carter Centre here in the UK. Rebecca, how did you first meet Mrs Carter? Well, we were, um, my husband Henry gave um, a modest donation to the Carter Centre and the next thing we knew, we had an invitation to meet Mrs Carter as she was passing through London on her way back from seeing their projects in Africa. And Henry and I thought, oh, what's the point of going to this? Because we'll be stuck on some table at the back of a banqueting room full of, you know, tons of people and they'll just want our money. Anyway, curiosity won and we turned up and there was one other couple and Mrs. Carter and um, she didn't want our money. She wanted somebody in London to start the Carter Centre UK so that it could apply for European Union money, um, which we duly did because she was a very persuasive woman. Um, but at the end of this evening with Mrs. Carter, uh, my husband ended up sitting on a radiator with Mrs. Carter and a bottle of wine, gossiping about US politics, which wasn't exactly how we thought the evening would start. <laughs> no. She also, I mean, they were both surprising in, in terms of uh, being at fundraisers where you're told we've only got 15 minutes. But I mean, you had a particularly memorable fundraiser with her. She and President Carter were again on their way back from uh, looking at their projects in Africa and uh, coming through London. And we organised a fundraising dinner for some high net worth individuals, as they're called. Um, and uh, her st the, the staff um, said, no, you can only have them for 15 minutes for the, the pre-dinner drinks. And we said, never mind, that's OK. People will be pleased to meet them. Well, they stayed for about three hours. And um, even though they were both exhausted, uh, you couldn't you couldn't stop them talking. Um, first of all, they brilliantly worked the room as only politicians can. And then at the dinner, we we seated them one at each end of the table. Uh, and, and President Carter started by by giving the table a remarkable sort of tour de force um, summary of global politics and then got on to the work of the Carter Centre. And Mrs. Carter kept interrupting him. She'd stand up and say, but Jimmy, you've forgotten such and such. And he would grin and sit down and then she would take over. And after about five minutes, he'd say, yes, Rosalind, but you've forgotten such and such. And he would stand up. This went on for more than two hours, and it was like watching a tennis match. We just sat there with our mouths, mouths hanging open as these two, these two remarkable people who, who, and it's no wonder they were married for 77 years, because they completely sort of complimented each other. And in a way, I thought, you know, she should have had the Nobel Prize as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, President, ex former President Carter did say Rosalind was my equal partner in everything I ever accomplished. I mean, we know she redefined the role of the First Lady. She had her own office, she had her own staff. What were her major achievements in that position? I mean, she was a, a remarkably political woman and a very intelligent woman, um, a, a product of the Depression. She really did know poverty. Um, you know, her father died uh, when she was only 13 years old and she had to go out to work. Um, so she never lost um, an understanding of what it means to be poor. But she also, um, at a time when it was not popular, she pioneered interest in mental illness. You know, this was a stigmatized subject for four decades ago, but she basically 
personally um, made sure that a mental health act was passed, uh, which set up a community mental health center in every part of the USA. Um, Tragically, the Reagan administration uh, abolished it. Um, But her other main achievement, to my mind, um, was highlighting the role of caregivers, which is often uh, something that women have to do unpaid in a voluntary basis taking up much of their lives. But she um, she set up a whole university course um, geared around recognizing the role of caregivers. Mm. She, she was also um, tireless in her focus on the role of women in Africa. I remember her telling me that when she and President Carter visited um, agricultural projects that the Carter Center supported, Uh, They would be walking through a field with the farmer, who was always a man, who owned the land, and they would ask him questions about how the crop was going. And he would always have to turn to his wife for the answer, because, of course, she was the one who was doing the backbreaking work. And she I remember her pointing out to me, you know, never underestimate the work that, that women are doing in Africa, even though economists always describe women in Africa as, you know, not part of the formal economy or or underemployed, mm. which kind of misunderstands their role. Rebecca, finally, you knew her. How different was the private Rosalind Carter? Um, the public Mrs. Carter um, was really focused and actually quite intimidating because she was utterly on message. You know, whether she was standing in the middle of an African bush monitoring an election on a cell, on a satellite phone, bollocking the leader of the country about why these people hadn't been given proper, you know, polling um, voting slips, uh, you know, or whether she was just haranguing, you know, a member of the Senate. But privately, she loved a good gossip. And, you know, she had lovely stories. I remember one about how um, on the eve that President Carter lost the election uh, to Ronald Reagan, um, they got a they got a, a telegram from Joan Byers, who was a friend of hers. And the telegram just said two words. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing's back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>